that we do. We're going to see that this morning. If you are willing and able, would you stand with me as we continue to worship together and read the words, Lord, the Lord's word, Psalm 90, first 11 verses. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we've been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Gracious Father, God, we thank you this morning for your word. Um, what a privilege it is here to be um, together worshiping you and learning from your word. Would you um, give attention to our minds and our hearts right now so your spirit can speak to us through your word in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat, please. So the first 11 verses of Psalm 90, I think, can be summed up in one sort of long, run-on, fragmented sentence. Life is short, it's difficult, and it's fleeting, and we deserve that, yet God protects. Life's short, difficult, and fleeting, and we deserve it, yet God protects. The superscription, the words above Psalm 90, aren't actually in the text of Scripture. Mine say, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is the only psalm preserving the words of Moses himself, and therefore, it's the oldest psalm. I like how he opens the psalm up by pointing out that God is our dwelling place. He is our protector. He's our place of safety, other ways to translate these words in all the generations. Remember how Frank's sermon on the seventh commandment last month, you shall not commit adultery, ended. His sermon ended with God himself being our protector in Psalm 32. And this is how Psalm 90 opens. Moses wrote this psalm probably towards the end of his life, late in the wilderness wanderings, probably close to his death, when he would die not even seeing the promised land himself with his own eyes. But he frames this whole prayer, this whole psalm, around trusting God. God and his eternal nature, from everlasting to everlasting, verse 2, God is the only necessary being. He's the creator of everything that exists. Everything else in the universe, even time itself, is contingent. That means it doesn't have to exist. It exists by God's good pleasure only. He's not limited in any way like we are by time and space. And before he created the universe, he was God. After he created the universe, he was God. He is God today, and he will be God tomorrow. Forever, he is God. First question we get this morning from this psalm, is he your protector? Is he my protector? Is he my dwelling place? If he's not your protector, he could be your protector, but this offer doesn't stand forever. So it's especially appropriate in light of our life being short. 
Hebrews 9, verse 27. Inasmuch as is it appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Verse 3. God makes mankind return to the dust, literally pulverized material, the dust from which he formed us. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes. We might remember that Peter quoted this verse when he said a thousand years are like a day to God and a day is like a thousand years. Our life is a blip, a vapor, a watch in the night. Another example our text uses, that's a watch is about four hours. A watch in the night is four hours when most people were sleeping. The point is, it goes by like that. You don't even notice it. It's a metaphor for how it's easy to waste the time that we have. Life is not only brief, our life, our life is also frail, like grass, this picture of grass in the desert springing up and withering away. It's not only frail, but it's hard. Look at verse 10. Life is 70 to 80 years if we make it full term, which none of us are guaranteed. But even their pride, even the best of those 70 or 80 years, are but labor and sorrow. One translation says, marred by trouble and oppression. Why is life short and difficult and fleeting? Why does it have to be this way? Well, from our text, we can see several places, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 11, talk about God's righteous wrath toward sin. God knows the condition of our hearts, and his just disposition towards the condition of our hearts is wrath. It's anger. Human life is as short as it is because of the consequences of sin. This is what our text says. This is familiar to us. Wages of sin is death. And so God turns man back into dust. Death is a consequence of sin. God even knows our secret sins. Verse 8, he knows the condition of our heart that condemns us, even when it's not obvious on the outside to other people. He knows our hearts better than even we do. You know, I heard a rumor last month that even our own beloved Pastor Frank publicly admitted to being a secret murderer in his heart. Do you remember this? I mean, I wrote it down and circled it and underlined it. (laughs) He actually said that. I'm that and more, and you probably are too. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us, John said. God's anger consumes us. His wrath should terrify us, the psalmist says, Moses says. You know, most preachers, at least a lot of modern preachers, aren't real big on preaching about God's wrath. It doesn't really fill seats. It doesn't really pay the bills. But you know, it's like really crowded in here right now, and we don't have a seat filling problem, so maybe we should just start preaching more about God's wrath for the pulpit, and we'll get more seats. I don't know, but I'm going to talk about wrath for like five more minutes. We all know John 3.16, right? That's a familiar scripture. How many of us as kids memor- or as adults memorize John 3.36? He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's there. Recall the cup of God's wrath that Jesus prayed to avoid himself at Gethsemane. In fact, God will have bowls of wrath to pour out on the world read Revelation 16. 
Paul in Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, sur- who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The psalmist in Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals of fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. In Proverbs 6, 16, we read about the six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 15, God is talking about the Israelites and all of their rebellion, their continual disobedience. He says this about his people. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. God said. It seems, reading these scriptures, and these are like the worst that I could find anyway, it seems that God doesn't just hate sin in the abstract. He has a righteous indignation towards sinners. How do you separate sin from sinner? When we think of hate or anger, we think of something different than the Hebrew scriptures we're talking about. I I don't think, myself, it's right to say that God hates anybody unless we qualify what the word hate means in this case. So, when we think of hate, when I think of hate, I think of an uncontrolling rage possibly blinding me to the point of, like, anger and maybe violence. You know, I think of what happens when I get angry and I sin. When God hates, he does so without sinning, right? That's obvious, should be obvious. He does it in a way that's completely consistent with his character and his nature, which is also perfectly loving. Many Bible scholars have pointed out that the Hebrew word for hate is best interpreted in many scriptures as to reject or to love less. Remember Genesis 29, the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. We read in verse 29 verse 30, just jot it down. We don't need to go through the whole story. But we read that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah in verse 30. And then in verse 31, the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. And then verse 33, Leah names her second son Simeon because he said, the Lord has heard that I am unloved. The word used here for unloved is literally the word for hated. So hated means to love less in this case. In Romans 9, Paul famously quotes from Malachi when he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But Esau wasn't really hated by God in the way that we think of the word hate. God chose Jacob over his older brother Esau, yes, but he was still compassionate towards Esau and his descendants. He only hated him in the sense that he chose Jacob Jacob over him. If that's not convincing, how about when Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So there's a way, apparently, for us to hate even our own family, and not only have that not be sin, but our Lord is telling us to do that. He's commanding us to do that if we want to be his disciple. So I don't think it's fair to say that the Bible teaches that God hates people, the way that we can understand that term. It does say that God loves all people in several places. 
But scripture does use really strong words, like in our text this morning, about hate and anger in referring to God's attitude towards sin, and sometimes even sinners. Now, there's some debate on this point, um, but I tend to think of wrath, God's wrath, not as, a, as an essential um, attribute of God, but as something that flows from his essential attributes. Two of those essential attributes are justice and holiness. God is perfectly just and holy. And his wrath is his righteous disposition towards sin and evil. I use that word disposition, disposition intentionally because God doesn't have emotional overreactions. Um, like when I hate somebody who's wronged me or my family. God cannot overreact. He cannot be overcome by emotion. It's also not a trivial preference here. Like when I say that I hate pickles or, or long lines or decaf coffee or traffic or whatever. Paul said in Romans 2, because of your stubbornness, an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Moses is saying this in Psalm 90. Verse 11 in a different translation reads, who can really fathom the intensity of your anger, speaking to God? Your raging fury causes people to fear you. Fear of the Lord is a good thing, right? That's a whole other sermon. It's the beginning of wisdom, we know from the Psalms. It prolongs life. It's the fountain of life. We should fear God, but never fear man. Fearing man is a trap, Psalm 29. Jesus said, remember, he said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do to you. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who has authority to cast you in the hell, into hell. That's who we should fear. God is so holy and righteous and perfectly just that fallen mankind who he created from the dust are necessarily separated from his presence. Not because of any shortness or shortcoming of God or, or him, him being unfair because of our sin, the consequences of which are our own fault. God is perfectly just, perfectly holy. The prophet Isaiah said, Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God's holiness disperses evil like light disperses darkness. You may have heard somebody say it that way before. Wrath is the only disposition he can have toward evil for him to remain righteous and just and holy. Our sin has consequences, including a short life. Our sin is not God's fault. The consequences of our sin have eternal ramifications. Let's move on in our text now to what I think is the pinnacle verse. Read with me Psalm 90, verse 12. He says, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Stop. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. We can't live wisely until we see the truth of our own frailty in light of eternity. We cannot live wisely until we see the truth of our frailty in light of eternity. It's a necessary condition to wisdom to know how frail we are. Teach us to number our days. This is teach us to consider our own mortality. It's another way to say this. Notice in the text how many times he uses the word day or something like it as a measure of time. I counted I don't know, seven 
verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, 9, 12, verse 14, verse 15, which we haven't read yet. In light of our eternal creator, which frames this whole thing, the fact that life has eternal consequences, in, in light of that, we should think about how we use our time, right? This quick time that we have on this planet. We need to remember our own mortality. Question, what did you do this week that you're going to be proud of for all eternity? How much time did you waste? This is a good reminder to ask God for eternal perspective. This whole thing in verse 12, it says, teach us to number our days. Not, not you know, I'm numbering my days. Bless them. Teach us to number our days. We have to ask for this. It doesn't always come naturally. A different psalmist in Psalm 39.4 said, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you've made my days as handbreadths and my life as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Salah. This Salah that's all over the Psalms, this is like a musical interlude. It's an opportunity. It's meant to have us focus on what was just said or read or sung. How we spend our time matters. We can spend our time rightly, but we need to stay focused on how precious and how fragile life is based on what matters in light of eternity, which is based on the character and nature of God. When we're doing it right, I think, it can be more like, one person said it this way, it's more like spending time. We don't want to spend time, we want to invest time. So if we're doing it right, it's more like investing, less like spending. What's the difference between spending and investing? Somebody in here knows it, I'm sure, way better than I do. I mean, what's the difference between spending and investing? One word. It's a re return. Yeah, exactly. Return. We have a choice whether to waste our time or to invest it in something that is eternal. This is the point here. You know, I've always had a really hard time with sermon illustrations. I'm not good. Never have been at illustrations or at metaphors as teaching aids and all this stuff. So when I was preparing this, I'm sitting in my office and I'm praying to God, will you help me, you know, find something to, to illustrate this? And that wasn't really my attitude, but I was praying this. And my, my eyes were drawn to like my bookshelf and there was a book on the shelf. And the title of the book I could read and it was called The Measure of Our Days. I had no idea where this book came from. Still not sure, actually. This book had this story of Kurt Baines in it that I opened up with. The book was written by the oncologist who treated him. This guy was an agnostic Jew, and he, had, he spent so much time with people who had this opportunity for the first time in their lives to number their days because they were dying young of disease. And he found a bunch of deep meaning in this, and he wrote a whole book on it. I got sucked in and ended up reading the whole book. Um, he actually finishes the book by quoting Psalm 90, verse 12. It's at the very end of the book. Like, cool, I have an illustration. Um, he shares another story in this book about a guy named Elliot who actually was one of his best friends who got sick and he treated uh, multiple rounds. He's a whole long story. Um, and he talks about this guy needing a treatment uh, called a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant. And this is what caused this doctor to make a literal connection to this numbering our days verse that he remembered uh, because he was a Jew. Um, I had this same procedure in 2021. I didn't think of this until I read it about somebody else. The idea here is you get high doses of chemo that kill the stem cells in your bone marrow, and uh, that's the production factory that makes all the cells in your blood that you need to survive. Millions every second, actually, it's kind of a miracle. Um, it basically then, this chemo deletes that, 
And if you leave that go for a week or two, you'll, you'll die a painful death. But they don't. After a few days, they inject you with your own stem cells that they took out of you before, and they kind of reboot that factory. Well, when you're in your treatment, everything revolves around this zero day when they reboot you with your own stem cells. So all of your days are numbered in a chart on a calendar. Everything, my dad could tell you this because he was taking care of me during this time, everything is about day number one, day two, day three, and they number your days to like 45. Interesting to make that connection between literally numbering your days and this text of scripture. Now, I hope and pray that you all don't get to experience that literally, but we're still called to number our days in a metaphorical way, to consider our own mortality and frailty. It's the point of our text this morning. I know a lot of people in this room have been, have been affected in profound ways by untimely sickness and death, and there's a lot that can be said about that, but one of the things we're meant to take away from tragedy and suffering like that is that life is short. Life is precious. None of us are guaranteed another breath, and we should live like that. Let's not waste our days spending them in selfish pursuit of material things that don't last. Let's remember how short and fragile life is. You can't live wisely until you see your own frailty in light of eternity. Let's continue in our text now and read verses 13 through 17 together. Verse 13. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. We have here at the end of this psalm a recipe for not wasting our short, fleeting lives but living wisely with meaning and with purpose. It can be summarized. The wise know that meaning can only be found in a relationship with the eternal God. The wise know that meaning can only be found in a relationship with the eternal God. And so they, the wise, backside of your sheet if you're taking notes, this fills in all the blanks right now. I'll do it real quick, and then I'll go through each one of them quickly. So the wise long for God's salvation the wise desire his mercy. The wise are satisfied with his love. They look to him for joy. They work with purpose, and they trust him with the results. First, the wise long for God's salvation. Verse 13, return, O Lord, how long will it be? Moses is longing for God's blessing, the promised land. We should also long for God's return, God's blessing of salvation. A different translation says, turn back toward us, O Lord. How long must this suffering last? Have pity on your servants. He just got done talking about God's wrath above. And now in this specific um, verse, we, we remember how you know, God hates those who do iniquity. Yet here in verse 13, Moses is longing for God's return. Moses isn't afraid of this God with all this wrath because he knows he needs salvation, and this can only come from God, who's his protector, and so he's asking him for mercy as well. So we long for God's salvation, we desire God's mercy. 
The psalmist in Psalm 39, verse 7 said, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Deliver me from all my sins of rebellion. Is what a different translation, how a different translation says it. What are you still in rebellion about? Do you even see a need for deliverance in your life? And who are you depending on to deliver you? Who do you think can deliver you? God's wrath is real. It's a necessary part of who he is, but he doesn't pleasure in punishing. Prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18, says, speaking for God, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. God's wrath flows from his holiness and from his justice, but equally, God's mercy flows from his love and his goodness. God presents us essentially with a choice as to how we will primarily experience his perfect character when we're confronted with it directly in the future, a day the Bible calls Judgment Day, that none of us will escape. Which would you rather experience, wrath or mercy? Friends, if there's anyone here who thinks they can avoid that choice, I promise you, you cannot. And if you're trying to avoid both of them, you're probably going to get the one you don't want. Or maybe you do want it. God provides the only, only a single way to escape the wrath that each of us deserve. I read John 3.36 earlier. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, because, but the wrath of God abides on him. Paul said it in one sentence, very simply, in his letter to the Thessalonians. He said, Jesus is our deliverer from the wrath of God. But God's wrath will remain with no deliverer. While God will have mercy on the repentant, who he unites with his son. Not because anybody deserves that, but because Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. And he makes that, he makes his righteousness available to us while taking the punishment that we deserve. Though we all die physically, through Christ, believers don't have to experience a second death that Revelation talks about, and that's eternal separation from God forever. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, quoting from this psalm, he said, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord isn't slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Even if you've wasted most of your life, God's prepared to show you mercy. Do you want it? There's this band that's become my favorite band in the last year. They're called the Hillbilly Thomists, and it's actually a bunch of Thomist monks that do bluegrass music. Kind of cool, maybe you should check it out. Not, maybe not appropriate for worship in the church, but it's good stuff. They have this song, Bourbon Bluegrass in the Bible. Good song. They open up the last verse of this song, talking about a guy who was baptized at 105. Not a life well lived, but a life well died. And then it goes on from there. <laughs> If you're alive, it's not too late, is the point, to turn from your rebellion and seek his forgiveness. He is so gracious. Seek his mercy, and you'll find his mercy, I believe. Even if you've been walking with the Lord for 
60 or 70 years or anywhere in between, we should still long for God's salvation. We should still desire his mercy because the salvation that was bought for you and for me on the cross isn't just an insurance policy to protect me from hell. It's also the only hope I have at doing anything of eternal value, anything with meaning, anything with actual purpose beyond this fleeting blip of a life. So Paul said in Ephesians 5, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. If we have this kind of an attitude, I think that'll help us spend a lot less and invest a lot more. I read that this text, Psalm 90, was used for like a thousand years in the church, the medieval church, as an appointed reading during burial services at the end of a funeral. So they would read Psalm 90 and they would read 1 Corinthians 15. Remember what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. Primarily it lays out Christ's resurrection as the first fruits, first fruits of our resurrection and it looks forward, right? Psalm 90 is not all about dwelling on how short our lives are and all this. This Psalm 90 turns us to look forward at this point. And so we shift our focus on the fact that we can live a life that matters, that really matters with God's help. We also remember that we have to look forward, what we have to look forward to in eternity. So the wise are also satisfied with his love. We should be satisfied with his love. Verse 14, here, oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness on First thing on reading this, almost never, a Hebrew word never occurs to my mind the first time of reading something in the Old Testament, but this one did. And if you've been around here a long time, maybe the same word popped into your head. Thank you, Frank. The word used here for loving kindness is chesed. It's a real specific word used in a real specific way, and it refers to God's loyal love, his devotion to his children. Now, the morning here could have been referring to, you know, originally, uh, the new start that the nation of Israel was about to get in the promised land um, after Moses dies and Joshua takes them into the promised land. Point here is the same. Be satisfied that the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe loves you. He paid a real cost to rescue you and adopt you as his own child. And so we should be satisfied with his love. We should also look to him for joy. We should look to him first. We should look to him only. We should look to him always. Verse 14, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. And again in 15, just says, make us glad. Verse 13 to 15 is a plea for mercy, to God to ha for God to have compassion on his servants and turn the joy he talked about before, turn the sorrow he talked about before in verse 10 into joy. There's also in here, I think, a plea for God to redeem the time that we spent suffering. All that time we spent in, dis in discomfort, Redeem it. All those years you've afflicted us and the years we've seen evil, turn that suffering into joy. We can have joy, true joy, lasting joy, eternal joy if we seek it in him. We also should work with purpose, the text says. Work with purpose. Verse 16 is a prayer to see God at work and for our kids to see it in the next generation. And verse 17, the work of our hands, which that phrase is repeated twice in there. The fact that we are working is just assumed, right? Did you notice that? It's just assumed. This reminds me of when Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Or everything that James says about the importance of our deeds if we want to live wisely. What we do matters a lot. If we want our lives to have any meaning. God doesn't need us 
to accomplish anything. Hopefully you've heard that a hundred times before. But he desires to use us. He wants what we do to have meaning. So we trust him with the results, finally. We work with purpose and we trust him with the results. Confirm for us the work of our hands. Other translations say, make our endeavors successful. More literally, you could translate these words, make our deeds permanent. The word there means permanent. Make them matter in light of how short and insignificant our lives are. Make our deeds permanent. What's the only permanent thing? God. He said that a dozen times here. Without a transcendent, personal God, there's really no basis for objective meaning. Everything has to be relativized to the subject. Intelligent and consistent atheists even will acknowledge this, that all meaning and value has to be subjective or is subjective. Relative to my own feelings, my own, our own culture or some evolutionary pressures, actually they presuppose that meaning is only subjective because to other, if it were otherwise, it would suggest the existence of a transcendent personal God, which is, makes people uncomfortable. I've talked with a lot of smart, very smart people who when pushed fall back to basically this blind faith in something or someone that might give them hope in like the wishful thinking sense of hope. But wishful thinking is not biblical hope. Biblical hope could be defined as a confident expectation in the God who fulfills his promises and that he will. People have faith in all sorts of things. People have faith in politics or science or worse, what politicians say about science, which is almost never science, no offense. Or they have faith in their own feelings, their own subjective desires above everything else. It's so common in our culture to make everything about our subjective feelings, about our sexuality even, or gender identity. We make that the foundational thing that defines who we are, or so many people in our culture do anyway. Hoping in our own feelings is a blind, and a vain hope, because it's hope in a God of our own making, essentially making our own feelings God. This is a God that cannot save. This is a God that offers no hope for ultimate meaning or purpose. If you really think much about these things, it will lead to despair, and so people don't think much about it. There really is no hope in any of that, except for a wishful thinking. But as followers of Christ, however, imperfect or floundering at times, we don't have to despair. Everything we do can and should matter because God will make our deeds permanent. He will do that work. He'll confirm the work of our hands. For it is for this that we labor and strive, Paul told Timothy, because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. And again to the Corinthians, he said, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Stand with me and let's pray. Gracious, holy, just Father, um, thank you for your message to us and your word this morning. Thank you that um, even though we don't deserve to be in your presence, um, because of your goodness and your love, 
and your mercy, you did for us what we couldn't do. You provide a savior and through him, you become our protector and our salvation. Um, Lord, we would ask that if there's, if there's anyone among us this morning that doesn't know you, that you would do your work, that your spirit would convict. That you call, would cause people in here and in our culture around us to turn from the gods of their own making and turn to you, the only God who can actually save. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Make us satisfied in your love only, Lord, and experience your joy. Make the work of our hands permanent. Change the world with your love through us. In the name of our Lord and only hope, Jesus Christ.